As you're turning there, I just want to comment on some reactions I've been getting lately as we've been going through these past few chapters of Matthew's Gospel, especially the past two chapters. Gotten a couple different reactions because it's heavy stuff. Okay, it really is some heavy stuff. And some of the reaction I've gotten is, gee, Pastor, do we, do we really have to be talking about this? I mean, this is some judgment and some condemnation, and it's, it's speaking against uh, Pharisees, and we're not Pharisees, are we? Uh, the, what we need to remember is that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the people of God will be equipped for every good work. So this is God's Word, and it is useful to us to teach us and to train us and equip us for ministry. The other reaction I get is, yeah, yeah, you tell them, pastor. You tell those hypocrites what's coming. I do get that. Nobody does it you know, in the lobby, but I, I get that reaction from people. And to that I say, please, please, please do not miss the point. Please hear the gospel. As, as we go through these verses, if you are not hearing the gospel, that is a shortcoming on my part. It is here, and you need to see it, and I will try to, to display it before you. Even in the midst of judgment, behold the gospel of God. And for those that are just joining us and, and don't know, I, you know, I don't just go through and pick out a passage that I feel like preaching on. We've been going through Matthew's gospel for some time now, and lately we are in some difficult passages where Jesus is encountering uh, religious hypocrisy and speaking words of judgment that we need to hear. So with all that in mind, I'm going to be reading Matthew 23, verses 29 through 39. Hear now the word of the Lord. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like you to pause for a moment and try to remember a time when you were rejected. Yeah, it's not a good feeling, is it? I'm sorry if it brings up bad memories, but maybe it was a job that you really had your sights set on and had placed some hope in and then they rejected you. Maybe it was a, an offer on a home that you thought was 
your dream home, or maybe it was a relationship that you were really invested in and, and you were rejected. And I want you to remember the feeling and, and how you wanted to respond. Maybe there was uh, uh, some bitterness, maybe a desire to, to get back at the person who had rejected you, to see that person regret rejecting you. Well, I wonder, how does God handle rejection? Last week, we looked at the first six of the seven woes in Matthew 23. This chapter is called the seven woes because seven times Jesus says, woe to you, you hypocrites. We looked at the first six last week, and now we look at the seventh one. And we talked about how a hypocrite is someone who, who uh, speaks and maybe appears in one way and expresses one set of values, but their, the reality, who they really are, is, is something different entirely. And that word hypocrite meaning under a mask, someone speaking from under a mask. A hypocrite wears a mask of good deeds and behaviors, but the reality is, is different. So in this last section, we, we see the peak, the, the height of their hypocrisy is that they appear to honor God, but they are really rejecting Him. So how does God react to such rejection? And before you go down that line of thought as an abstract exercise, that, that that's something that's true of the Pharisees and the bad people, the people out there, they're the ones who reject God. Remember, remember how Peter responded when Jesus told him, you're, you're going to deny me. You're all going to leave me, and you, Peter, will deny me three times. And Peter said, oh, yes, Lord, you're right. I need to take these words to heart. Didn't he? No. He says, surely not me. Not me. I, I, I'm not capable of that. We need to approach these words recognizing that we are capable of this. All of us, to varying degrees, rebel against God. And in doing so, we reject His authority over us. Many people accept parts of God, the parts we like, the parts that line up with our values. Maybe we like the, God, the idea of God being a God of love, but not so much a God of holiness. We like God as light, but not as fire. But He comes to us as all these things. Though we may not reject Him entirely, neither do we accept Him and receive Him entirely. And so how does God respond to our rejection? Hold tight, because the answers begin a little rough. But as we persevere through the hard section, we, we see the Gospel. And we see that God judges those who reject Him, but God loves those who reject Him. And ultimately, God rescues those who reject Him. Last week, as I said, we looked at the first six of the seven woes condemning hypocrisy. And here we see the seventh one, which at first might seem out of place. Verses 29 and 30 again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. How is that hypocrisy? What? At first, it doesn't even seem like there's anything bad about that. They're, they're honoring the righteous men and women of the past who were killed for their faith. They're honoring the martyrs and the prophets that were killed in, in earlier years in Israel. But Jesus takes their language and twists it in verse 31. He says, oh, when, when you say that, you're witnessing against yourself that you are indeed the sons of those who murdered the prophets. He's doing a, a little linguistic trick. He's playing with the words a little bit. They said, oh, these are our fathers, our ancestors that, that murdered the prophets. And well, there's one way of being a son or a daughter. That's being a, a literal descendant of someone. 
But there's also a sense in which a son or a daughter is someone who acts like another person. Like Jesus says elsewhere, that that you are the sons of Satan because he's a liar and you're lying. You act like he acts. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like, actually, you're just as much like them because you're doing what they did. They killed the prophets. You're going to kill the prophets too. They rejected God's word to them. You're rejecting God's word to you as well. A son or a daughter, in this case, is someone who acts like you. And there's nothing more humiliating or convicting as a parent than to see your children behaving a certain way and judging them for it until you realize where they saw that behavior to begin with. I learned it by watching you, right? And so Jesus is saying, you are indeed the sons of the ones who killed God's messengers and you're doing the very same thing. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Finish the job. Do what they did in its entirety. How? Well, they're going to reject Jesus and his disciples. Verse 34. I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you'll flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. Jesus is foretelling that these people will persecute and reject and even kill Jesus and his disciples. This is not just some denominational scuffle. This is not a disagreement over some some matters of, of theology. This is rejecting God Himself. That's what Jesus says in Luke 10. He says to His disciples, whoever hears you, or whoever hears you hears me, and whoever rejects you rejects me, and whoever rejects me rejects Him who sent me. To reject the disciples, the messengers of God, is not a minor thing, is to reject God Himself. And that's a warning to many people today, both within the church and those who stand outside the church, that it's not enough to be a nice person. It's not enough to be a moral person. It's not enough to be a religious person. It's not enough to be a spiritual person. I have met many wonderful people, many wonderful, nice people, kind people, spiritual people, moral people, religious people who still reject the Word of God. Because we want a Jesus that fits our categories, a Jesus that fits our expectations and who aligns with our values and our picture of whom He should be. And so we reject the Bible's testimony in part. And in doing so, we are rejecting the God who has given us that testimony. We reject the Word of His apostles. And in doing so, we don't just reject the doctrine and the faith that they have handed down. We reject God Himself. God does not measure us on a scale of how good or how bad our behavior is, or how popular and well-liked we are, or how well we uphold the values and virtues of our culture and our day. We either accept and obey Christ, or we reject Him, and in doing so, we reject God. And those who reject God will be judged. This is why Jesus, it's not on the slides, but in verse 33, these harsh words. How are you even going to escape being sentenced to hell if you reject God's messengers? Notice it's not, he was speaking to good moral people. He was speaking to people who knew God's word. He was speaking to people who had good doctrine. And his question for them is, how are you going to escape hell? Because you've rejected the Son of God. And in doing so, you rejected God. 
Now, there's a degree to which this warning was already fulfilled. And follow me here, starting in verse 35, he says, So that on you may come all the righteous, on you, you listening today, he says, may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, if you're not familiar, Abel, from the story of Cain and Abel, the first murder, the first death, the first martyr, he was killed by his brother Cain. And we find out later in Scripture that, that uh, the interpretation is that he was killed because his deeds were righteous and his brother's deeds were evil. And the evil one could not stand the righteous one and killed him. That was in Genesis, first book of the Bible. Now the way that the, the Hebrews ordered their Scriptures, they had the same books we had, but just put them in a different order. And the last book was Second Chronicles. They didn't call it that, but it was 2 Chronicles. And at the end of 2 Chronicles, in chapter 24, there's, there's somebody named Zechariah who is killed uh, in the temple, in a courtyard of the temple. And, and for the same reason, he, he preached righteousness. He called people out on their sin. He called them to be faithful to God. And there were people who did not like that message, and so they killed the messenger. And in doing so, they rejected God. And so what Jesus is saying from Abel in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to, to Zechariah here at the end of the Scriptures, from beginning to end, people have always rebelled against the Word of God. And on you will come that judgment because, because God has been patient. God has waited. God has held back His hand for so long. But on you will come judgment, he says in verse 36. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And what he meant is that not long after he spoke these words, a few decades later, while many who heard those words were still alive, that generation that was still on earth in the year 70 A.D., Rome entered Jerusalem and devastated it. Wiped out the temple ended the sacrificial system of worship, ended the presence of God's people there. It was what God had promised and predicted for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, that He would not forever put up with disobedience, and that if His people persisted in rejecting Him, He would send a foreign nation to destroy them. And He finally did that. On them fell the blood of every martyr that God had so patiently waited to judge. But God continues to warn even today. Yes, that judgment fell on Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago. But today, He warns us in Hebrews 10 that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, then there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins. There's nothing you can do to cover that up. Once you know the truth and still disobey God, there's no sacrifice yet for sin, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. The harsh truth is that God judges sin. And you will experience that judgment in only one of two ways. There's no other option. Either you yourself will endure the wrath of God, or Jesus steps in and endures the wrath of God for you. There's no other option. And those who reject God and reject Jesus and reject the way He has given in Jesus have removed that option and will be judged. It doesn't matter how religious or spiritual you are. It doesn't matter how much you know, how much you give, or how much you do in God's name. If you reject Jesus, you reject the only hope you have of not facing the wrath of God. And if they do not turn, they will learn too late 
that God judges those who reject Him. This section is filled with warning, but Jesus goes on next to open the heart of God to us. But first, realize that even warnings of judgment are mercy. You know, if if you don't care about somebody, you're not going to warn them that they're heading into trouble. A warning is an act of mercy. And when Jesus is warning them of these things, He is giving them a merciful chance to turn and repent. But yet, in verse 37, He opens up the heart of God even more clearly. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that, that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He speaks to Jerusalem, which represents all of His people, all of God's people. And in that, we see that even though God judges those who reject Him, Jesus shows us also that God still loves those that reject Him. And even as they reject Him, His heart is moved and goes out to them. You must never ever imagine a God who's just watching you and other people and waiting for you to slip up so that he can get you. You know, he's just, he just, he loves to punish. Many of us grew up uh, picturing God in that way, a God who delights in punishment. But that is not who he is. And some of you are thinking, yeah, I know, I know. And, and Jesus came and told us that God is love. No, no, no. Long before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem, we have in Scripture again and again the message that God is merciful and compassionate and loving. Just one example from Ezekiel 18. The Lord says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. He's pleading. He's begging. He's like, I don't want, I don't desire your death. So I give you a chance to turn. Even the final judgment, the end of all things, which we're going to get our fill of in the next few weeks as we get into Matthew 24. It's all about that. But even the end judgment delays and waits and the Lord holds back His hand of judgment. Why? 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise of judgment as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Judgment delays because the Lord loves those that reject Him. and He's giving them a chance. Now we could, at this point, go into the, the standard Reformed theology conversation about, about God's sovereign will and how He perfectly ordains everything that comes to pass and the beautiful doctrine of election that only those whom God has chosen will ultimately turn and repent. We, we could get into all that and it's all biblical and it's all true and it's all right, but I don't want to get distracted from what Jesus is actually showing us here. I want to see what Jesus is revealing to us, which is the heart of God, a heart that longs for those who are turned away from Him telling us how, how He longs to gather up and protect and spare and save the people that have rejected Him again and again. His heart is to restore and to reconcile. So sisters and brothers, let this be an example to us. If we seek to imitate the heart of God, if we want to be like Him, then what should be our attitude towards those who are in rebellion against Him? Should we be judging, criticizing, mocking, looking down on, ignoring, despising, seeking to 
to remove them from our life and build up a safe world where we are not encountering those who are opposed to God? Does that align with the heart of God here? Weeping over the lost and desiring to gather them up. Look at this image in verse 37. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Jesus describes himself as a mother bird. Think of that. And the picture is is this this mother bird whose, whose little chicks are just trying to go their own way and they don't recognize how dangerous it is, how many predators are out there and how many other dangers they're exposing themselves to. And the mother bird is trying to gather them all together under her wings and keep them safe and protect them. But they're stubborn and they're leaving. This is also in Isaiah 30. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and in rest you shall be saved under, under my wings. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. You wouldn't come to the one place where you had the promise of true rest. So not only should this image soften our hearts towards those in rebellion, but it should also remind us that every time we refuse to draw near to God, every time in a, in a in personal crisis, or in temptation, or for whatever reason, we are seeking our own way. Because we think God's way is too hard. And we resist Him. We are rejecting the one true opportunity we have for peace and for rest. You need to picture God as this mother bird, as this hen trying to protect you, trying to bring you in while you're trying to run away. Or better yet, as the as the prodigal son's father, who who allowed his son to go off, taking his money and his reputation with him, knowing that his son was going to destroy and waste his youth and his resources and everything until he finally came to his senses and came home. And all that time, the father is waiting, longing, loving his son, unrelenting love, stubborn love, never ceasing to love the one that broke his heart. So we see that God judges those that reject him, but he still, still loves those that reject him. And because he loves them, he has a plan. Because God rescues those that reject him. However, it might not be the plan that they would expect or desire. Verses 38 and 39, he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've got to unpack that because it's not maybe apparent on the surface what he's talking about here. First, we have a desolate house. Desolate meaning empty, abandoned, deserted, left alone. In light of all that he has said so far and in light of everything that's about to follow this, it's, it's clear that when he speaks of a house, he's speaking of the temple. He looks down upon Jerusalem and he says, your house, this temple, desolate. It's empty. Now, it wasn't, strictly speaking, empty. There was a lot of activity. There was was sacrifices. There were songs of praise. There were prayers. There were people coming and going, conducting business. There were lots of people there, but God had left. It's hard for us to understand the significance of this. We've got to rewind a little bit and understand the role of the temple. You know, there was a cloud. When the people of Israel left Egypt, left slavery, They were led through the wilderness by a cloud. 
And that cloud led them up to the Red Sea. And then God parted the sea and and they were led through it. And then the cloud took them through the wilderness, took them to the mountain where they received God's word, and then took them right up to the borders of the promised land and led them day and night. And when the tabernacle was built for them to use for worship, the cloud descended upon the tabernacle so that they knew that God was with them. And then generations later, they're in the promised land and they built the temple under Solomon. They built the temple. And see what happens the day the temple was built. When it was finally finished in 1 Kings 8, we see this. When the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. As an Israelite, you could go to Jerusalem in those days and look at the temple and know God is with us. He has not abandoned us. He is still here with us. But now, Jesus is saying, now the house of the Lord is your house because God has left. He has emptied the temple. God will no longer honor that place. His glory departs. They are abandoned by God. That's the bad news. But the good news comes next because it's it's interesting how Jesus connects verse 38 and verse 39. It's a simple word, the word for. The temple is desolate. God has left the temple because, for, they will not see Jesus again. For Jesus is leaving. They've rejected him. He is leaving. He says in verse 39, for you will not see me again. The house is desolate because you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the presence of God. He is God with us. No longer do his people need to look to a temple or a holy place. No longer is it a cloud of mystery. In Jesus, we see the face of God revealed. And those who rejected God will not find their way back to him through sacrifice, through temples, through rituals. They will be rescued from their rebellion only when they receive the king, when they say of him, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Familiar words, right? It's what the crowds shouted when he came into Jerusalem earlier that week. It's a quote from one of the Psalms. It's a declaration that he is king, that he is the one that the Lord has sent. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word until, you will not see me again until, is also important It doesn't mean you will see me again and here's when it's going to happen. Like, you're not going to see me until I get home from work today, I might tell my kids. Well, that's a promise that I'm coming home and it's going to happen. It's saying when it's going to happen. No, the way this is worded is different. That word until is more like a parent telling a child, yeah, you're not getting any dessert until you clean up that mess in your room. Is it going to happen? Give it 50-50 odds, depending on the kid and the household. You know, it's a, it's a promise of reward when a condition is met. And there's a chance it's not going to happen. And that's what Jesus is saying. If they continue to reject Jesus, they will not see the Lord again. He has removed himself from them. But if they turn and bless him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, then God again dwells with them. So what does that have to do with us who, who have nothing to do with the temple Well, let me ask you this. Where do you go to look for God? 
Do you seek after assurance? Do you seek after a glimpse of God's love by, by looking for miracles in your life? By, by looking to answered prayer? Like if God's answering my prayers, then I know he loves me. Then I know he's here. Uh, do you look for supernatural events? You're searching through, through YouTube to find fulfilled prophecy videos and things like that. So you can have some sense that yes, okay, God is real and God loves us. Are you looking for an emotional high? If I can get myself all worked up in worship and maybe in this church even raise my hands as the ultimate expression of of my emotional state, then I know God loves me because I feel it. Or maybe, maybe you look for assurance and God's love and acceptance in, in your behavior, in doing the right thing, living the right way, believing the right core doctrines. And, you know, if, if I believe these things, then God is pleased with me. I associate with the right people. I'm at the right kind of church. We go looking for the face of God in many places where He has said, it is desolate. It is empty. I am not there. It's not how you see the face of God, brothers and sisters. If you build your house on those things, then Jesus' warning to the Pharisees holds true to you that your house is left to you desolate, empty. But... Look to Jesus. If you confess, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, then you see the face of God. Then the one you rejected becomes your rescuer. As we already sang this morning. Who, O Lord, could save themselves? Their own soul could heal. No, we were far away, but Your love went further still. You alone can rescue. It's not a temple. It's not a mystery. It's not our behavior. It's not an emotional high. It's not a series of answered prayers. There's nowhere that you are assured of seeing the face of God except in Jesus and what He has done. And what He has done is unbelievable. There's a story in the Bible about David and his son Absalom. If you were if you were raised in the church and, and heard all the Old Testament stories, if I say Absalom, you're probably picturing the, the man with a long flowing mane of hair. He was known for his long, awesome hair. Absalom was one of the sons of King David. And uh, he has one of the most unique deaths in Scripture that I'm not going to get into at this point. But at, at one point in, in Scripture, we see there's a, a conflict between Absalom and David. And Absalom, the son, drives the king out of the palace and, and has so manipulated the population that he has the support of the people. And so David leaves in shame, being spit upon and cursed at and having things thrown at him by the people as he, as he goes into exile and tries to find a safe place before Absalom's armies close in and, 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 and finish the job. Much like God, despised, rejected, cast out, chased away from our hearts, And yet he still longs to gather us in. And that's what David did. David, even as his loyal soldiers are fighting against Absalom's army, David's uh, his love for Absalom, his son, is so great that, that the commander of David's army has to come to him and say, look, you're demoralizing your men. Because you're, you care more about the son that's trying to kill you than you do the army that's fighting for you. And you're telling us to protect this guy who's trying to kill us. You see, David could not stop loving his son. And in the end, Absalom dies kind of in battle. And when David receives news that 
the traitor is dead and he's free to return and reclaim his kingdom. Rather than rejoice over the defeat of his enemy, he mourns, he laments, he cries for Absalom. And in 2 Samuel, we see his lament, which sounds a lot like Jesus mourning over Jerusalem. He says, it says, the king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, why? I would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, would that I could have gathered you up. Oh, my rebellious children. Do you see the gospel in David's words, though? He slipped them in there. The Holy Spirit did it, but did you catch the gospel? David said, would that I had died instead of you. David longed to die in the place of his son. That's how much he loved the one who not, not only rejected him, but was at war against him and trying to kill him. He wished he could give his life in exchange for the one who was fighting him. And what David only wished he could do, Jesus the king, in fact, did. Jesus the rejected king. Jesus the despised and spit upon king. Jesus the one chased out of our lives dies in place of the ones who rejected him. He stands over his people, you and me, and he laments, he cries. His heart aches that we are far from him, and yet he is able to give his life in exchange for ours. My brothers and sisters, that, that's your hope this morning. That no matter how far we go in our rebellion against him, and even in our rejection of him, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In him we're reconciled to God. The broken relationship has been repaired. It cost the life of the king, but it is finished. As we're going to sing in a minute, when we behold the wondrous cross, we, we say, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? The sorrow of God at his people's rebellion and rejection of him meets the love of God, the stubborn love of God that doesn't give up on his people. They meet at the cross and rescue the rebels from their own destruction. Let that humble you today. Remembering that your relationship to God is not the product of something you've done, of the good things you've done, or having the good sense to wise up and pick the right side, or that you've said the right things or believed the right things. You're not saved by believing that Jesus died on the cross. Let that sink in. You are not saved by believing that Jesus died on the cross. You're saved because Jesus died on the cross. Right? You follow the difference? The one is the thing you do. I'm saved because I believed. The reality is, he did it. You got the benefit. Now you got to believe it. Let that humble you. Romans 5 reminds us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You were not someone good that God invited into his kingdom. You were not somebody who was almost there but not quite and just needed a little bit of help to get over the line. You were an enemy rejecting God. 
And He has reconciled you by giving His life in your place. So let that humble you. But also, I want this truth to encourage you this morning. I want it to make you bold. I want it to make you bold in knowing the love of your Savior because this shows you that there is no failure so great, no sin so bold, no distance so far that would make God's love run cold towards you and cause Him to abandon you. He weeps over the city that rejected Him and He makes a way back. What greater sin could we imagine than, than rejecting and killing our Savior. And even that sin finds itself covered by the stubborn love of God. That is your God, brothers and sisters. He rejects your rejection. He says, no, no, not having that. I'm bringing my children home until the, the mother hen reaches out her wings and brings every lost chick safely home. That's the stubborn love of God. That's how He deals with rejection. Let us praise Him for that and thank Him for that as we survey the wondrous cross that was the instrument of our reconciliation. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have rejected our rejection of You, that Your heart never ceased to long for Your children, and that in Your power You made a way back. Such love is too great for us to understand. All we can do is gaze upon the cross, recalling what you've done and rejoicing in the victory of God over our rebellion. We thank you that you've taken sinners and made them saints, taken rebels and made them sons and daughters. In all these things we rejoice and we pray in the name of the one who has made it possible. Amen.